and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. There has been a lot going on, and we're going to talk about it. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. This article comes to us from earthsky.org, and it's titled, Say Goodbye to Earth's Mini Moon on February 1st and 2nd. Unfortunately, oh. by the time you'll be listening to this, it'll already be gone, but there was a live stream <laughs> and there is a recording. But let's dig into what this mini moon actually is. So... In November, a new mini-moon began orbiting Earth, and NASA later confirmed that it's a lost-and-found 60s-era rocket from the Surveyor 2 moon mission launched more than 50 years ago. Oh. Yeah, it's titled SO-2020. Astronomers first noticed it uh, last September. Orbit models showed that both the low speed and trajectory of the approaching object were rather unusual, and the models showed that Earth would actually capture this object temporarily as its new mini-moon, and that's what's been happening. So 2020 SO has been orbiting Earth since the 8th of November, and following further analysis of its motion and a very close approach of the object on December 1st, NASA was able to confirm that the object is a relic of the early space age, a Centaur upper stage rocket booster, which was once called America's workhorse in space. Because it's a Centaur. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so it's about to make one more close approach to Earth on February 2nd, 2021. It'll pass farther away this time, or will have had passed, but still within <laughs> 0.58 lunar distances, or 140,000 miles, so no worries about, you know, getting a satellite or rocket booster crashing into your backyard. Right. And in March of 2021, Earth's gravity will relinquish its hold. It'll no longer be a mini-moon for Earth, and instead it'll just be orbiting the sun as part of our solar system. Surveyor 2, which was the robotic spacecraft that was launched to the moon on September 20th, 1966, was meant to be the second lunar lander in the uncrewed American Surveyor program to explore the moon. The spacecraft blasted into space atop the Centaur-D rocket from Cape Kennedy, Florida. Uh, unfortunately, a mid-course correction failure caused ground controllers to lose contact with the craft three days later after a thruster failed to ignite, and the failure caused the spacecraft to tumble and crash near the moon's Copernicus crater. So there's just like a rocket out there on the moon, which I didn't even realize is just hanging around as some more space litter. Yeah, I've always wondered about that. Like, we've gone and put rovers on Mars, but we've never put a rover on the moon to just sort of wander around and tell us cool things. I guess we figure it's too easy. Like, we can yeah. toss a person up there, so we might as well go for something harder. Yeah. <laughs> so, unlike some rocket boosters today, which now return to Earth and land on ships at sea, Surveyor 2's rocket booster remains in space and was lost and appeared to have been pushed from its original trajectory by a small but continuous pressure from sunlight. Huh. And it turns out that the defunct booster had passed Earth unnoticed several times in the past, including a close approach in 1966, not long after it launched. So the question is, you know, how could we have lost an entire 41-foot-long rocket? Right. <laughs> uh, so space archaeologist Alice Gorman of Flinders University in Australia told Science Alert that before our modern era of reusable rockets, the rockets that launched craft into space were surprisingly easy to lose. She said, there are so many factors in the space environment, like gravitational factors and other things that affect movement, that can sometimes be quite unpredictable. 
You have to keep tracking these things or you can just sort of lose sight of them really easily. And if they do something a little bit unpredictable and you look the wrong way, then you don't know where it's gone. <laughs> like a child in the grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, if space law doesn't pan out for you, space archaeologist is a good backup. Like that's a pretty I know, awesome job right? title. Yeah. Honestly, you could put space in front of any profession. I'd be into it. Right, like right. space beekeeper. <laughs> uh, sure. Space shoeshine. I mean. Whatever it takes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so NASA also explained that pressure from the sun's radiation could cause the object to change its trajectory. Uh, they said the pressure exerted by sunlight is small but continuous, and it has a greater effect on a hollow object than a solid one. A spent rocket is essentially an empty tube and therefore is a low-density object with a large surface area. Mm. So it will be pushed around by solar radiation pressure more than a solid high-density clump of rock, much like an empty soda can will be pushed by the wind more than a small stone. So right. I think this is also the idea behind like solar sails. So Yeah, 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 the, that makes the, sense. Okay. Yeah, so the thing pretty much turned into a cylindrical solar sail, I guess. And this isn't the first time that Earth has captured a mini moon. Space is chock full of small asteroids, as you probably know. Two confirmed mini moons are the 2006 RH120 and 2020 CD3, which was in our orbit between 2018 and 2020. And it's also not the first time we've mistaken space junk for an asteroid. Uh, another small object that was initially thought to be an asteroid was WT1190F, which, you know, I feel like <laughs> there's a pun you could have gone for there. Yeah, but they... they stuck the 1190 in there just to be safe, but... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and it was detected in October 2015 on approach to Earth, and its trajectory suggested it was about to penetrate Earth's atmosphere near Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean, an event that actually happens with ordinary asteroids several times a year. But in the case of 2020SO, its return home won't last long. After March, the spent rocket body will be on its way again, back into the larger solar orbit. Yeah. And maybe it'll come back someday. You never know. Yeah, maybe. It, maybe it'll get caught up with Oumuamua or, you know, some yeah. other giant rock thing. And then it's like our children are coming home. <laughs> or we'll send it to another space system and they'll look at it. They'll be like, no, it's new. It's too weirdly shaped. Who has a hollow asteroid? It's got to be alien yeah. technology. <laughs> and then they'll just send it back. Right. Return to sender. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, the general rule of thumb is if a article's headline asks a question, the answer is always no. Right. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, but in this case, there actually is a yes answer to this article. And it's pretty amazing. Oh. So Zoe Corbin at The Guardian reports, is it possible to change a chicken's sex before it hatches? Whoa. Yeah. So the chicken farming industry has many problems, but one of them is what to do with all the male chicks that are born. They're obviously no good for laying eggs, but they also can't be raised for meat because that half of the industry uses particular breeds that grow up quicker and fatter than the breeds that are used for egg laying, right? Mm -hmm. So worldwide, about 7 billion male chicks are killed each year just minutes after they're born. They all hatch, they take the male ones, and they chuck them. And wow. <laughs> Yeah. And most are turned into food for zoo animals, so they don't go entirely to waste. But it's still a really inefficient process, and not to mention a kind of cruel one. In the UK, the chicks are gassed, but in most countries, and a brief content warning, you may want to cover your ears for this, they are tossed into a shredder. Oh. So it's really awful, and it would be better, because apparently humanity's not going to stop eating eggs, if we could just not have these male chicks be born in the first place, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. it's like, why not? <laughs> but so a new startup, Suze Technology, thinks they may have unlocked a way to do it. Founders Yael Alter and Nashat Haj Mohammed are a little vague about how they discovered their technique, 
other than to say that Mohammed found that eggs that were laid in certain areas of his family's free-range chicken farm seemed to yield more female chicks. So they did some experimentation, and they narrowed it down, apparently, to sound waves by exposing the developing eggs to particular frequencies at particular volumes and particular intervals. They are currently producing batches of chicks that are 60% female, and they believe that with more tweaking, they can get that number even higher. Wow. I mean, the logical next question is, does this work on humans? That's true. That's true. I mean, I don't know. That's where my brain went. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, and they actually admit they don't know precisely why it works. We do know that sound exposure can alter the expression of certain genes in certain animals. For example, one study found that when some types of mouse cells were bombarded with sound, the genes involved in bone formation and wound healing were suppressed. Which, in that case, is not a great thing, but it does show that sound can have an effect on gene expression. It's also known that other external environmental factors like temperature can easily determine the sex of many reptiles and some fish. But that doesn't apply to birds, so they're, you know, they're, they're just guessing at this point, but they've definitely got evidence that it could be working, other than the fact that this guy says it's working. Uh, (laughs) Some developmental biologists say that the most likely culprit, in their opinion, is the gene DMRT1, which regulates gonad development. But others say it's more complicated than that because chicks that have had DMRT1 turned off come out looking female, but they're still genetically male and they're often infertile or have other health problems. But so far, the sound doesn't seem to be affecting the chicks in any other way. They seem to be healthy, and once they grow up, they lay just as many eggs as their silently hatched counterparts. So the exact sound that Sue's technology is narrowing in on is, of course, proprietary, and they're seeking patents. But they did describe it in general terms as a loud, continuous beeping that plays several hours a day. So not super musical. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is basically binaural beats for chicken eggs. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine little, like, headphones on the shells. That would be adorable. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) One of the things they have found is that the eggs are surprisingly sensitive. Eggs in some areas of the incubator are currently hatching more females than others. So they're trying to perfect the exact volume and speaker placements inside the incubator that works best. And believe it or not, even PETA has stated that if this technology works, it would be an improvement, though, of course, it would still be an unethical exploitation of the chicken's labor. So I guess PETA is okay with eating eggs. That was sort of what they implied, which surprised me. But they're they're like, it's okay to eat the egg, but you're still exploiting the chicken that laid it. So that's not cool. Yeah. I feel like whatever makes fewer male chickens suffer minutes after they're born is better. But then again, like they're being born into an egg farming industry where it's like go sit in a cage and lay as many eggs as possible before you die. So I don't know that that alternative is much better for the female chicks either. Yeah, like maybe that's the easy way out. Yeah. Well, and you, it makes you wonder like what's so special about the beep? Like is there evolutionarily yeah. some animal that chirps like that beep and therefore it tells you predators around and you better have more females because you're going to have to ensure the continuation of the species like i don't know i feel like we're going to find some ancient creature that beeped exactly like this thing and that's going to explain it (laughs) maybe dinosaurs beeped (laughs) (laughs) that i would love to see the jurassic park remake of that Ooh, that would be pretty good (laughs) next link next Next link. link This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com, and it's titled, Lunar Cycle Has Distinct Effect on Sleep, Study Suggests. Oh. So folklore has saddled the moon with major responsibilities for Moods, spikes in crime, and even psychosis are blamed on the Earth's only constant natural satellite, 
And scientists have long understood that human activity is facilitated by light, be it sunlight, moonlight, or artificial light. Uh, but a study suggests our ability to sleep is distinctly affected by the lunar cycle, even when taking into account artificial sources of light. Well, I mean, that's where the original word lunatic came from, was they were like, yes. these people who are crazy are crazier on the full moon. So, I, yes. you know, I believe it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so using wrist monitors, researchers tracked sleep patterns in 98 individuals living in three indigenous communities in Argentina over the course of one to two months. One rural community had no electricity access. A second rural community had limited access to electricity, while a third community was located in an urban setting and had full access to electricity. Hmm. So... Participants in all three communities showed the same pattern of sleep oscillations as the moon progressed through its 29.5-day cycle, with sleep duration changing by between 20 and more than 90 minutes and bedtimes varying by 30 to 80 minutes. Hmm. In each community, the peak of participants sleeping less and staying up later occurred in the 3-5-day to five day period leading up to full moon nights, and the opposite occurred on the nights that preceded the new moon. Hmm. And... The data was somewhat surprising because the initial expectation was of less sleep and more activity on the full moon nights, said the study's author Horacio de la Iglesia, a professor of biology at the University of Washington. But it turns out that the nights before the full moon are the ones that have the most moonlight during the first half of the night. Oh, okay, I see. You're leading up to werewolf time, and that's got you nervous, and yeah. so you're staying awake, you're more on guard. I think it makes sense. <laughs> so, unsurprisingly, data showed the lunar phase effect on sleep appeared to be stronger the more limited access to electricity was. Sure, that makes sense. And in an attempt to corroborate their findings, the researchers compared the results to similarly collected data from 464 Seattle-based students studying at the University of Washington, and they found the same oscillations in sleep patterns. Hmm. And De La Iglesia added, uh, we humans tend to believe that we manage to somehow control nature, and the use of artificial light is a great example of that. But it turns out that there are some forces of nature that we cannot get away from. Previous research on the effects of the moon on sleep have been inconsistent, and most have not been designed to specifically look at the impact of the moon. Dr. Ciro De La Monica, a research fellow at the Surrey Sleep Research Center, said the study is very interesting, but as the authors state themselves, they cannot establish causality. However, the data are strong well, and novel. Yeah, because if it's a correlation, that would mean that somehow by sleeping less, we are making the moon become full. That doesn't, yeah. I don't think that works. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a pretty clear, I mean, maybe there's a third factor. It could be that. I'm just saying, yeah. it doesn't go the other way, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would read that book. That'd be really cool. <laughs> if you drug the whole village, they're all sleeping, and then the werewolf can't become the werewolf. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I guess you could also drug the human who's a werewolf. That's true. Uh, if you know. if you know who the werewolf is, that would seem more likely. Just drug that one yeah. and let everybody else be sober. <laughs> yeah, we'll need to bust out some index cards for this. That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from studyfinds.org. It's called Naked Mole Rats Speak in Different Languages Just Like Humans Study Shows. Huh. So have you ever seen a naked mole rat? <sighs> I feel like I have, and then I maybe blocked it out. Right, yeah. Because they're really weird looking, right? They're incredibly weird looking. They live underground in hostile desert regions like East Africa, and they're actually pretty ancient creatures as far as evolution is concerned. And over millions of years, they've built up these really weird adaptations, the most obvious of which is their complete hairlessness. Because, you know, they don't need fur to keep warm, of course, but since they live underground, they also don't need it to protect them from the sun. Then beyond that, their skin itself is actually uniquely adapted to living in these kind of dry, twisty little tunnels. It's super baggy and stretchy, 
and it makes it easier for them to wiggle around corners and tight passageways. And I, they look oh. like they have about twice as much skin as they need. I'm not going to lie. It's super gross. Like, this is not a cute creature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they do have a picture if you want to see it. But you can imagine, like, it's all just super rippled. Like, you can picture them getting stuck in a corner and, like, they just sort of slip around and they're, it's gross. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure that naked mole rats' mothers love them. But because food is so scarce, colonies of naked mole rats have to work together and share resources in order to survive. And scientists have previously observed them using systems of labor division and other kind of higher order social skills in their colonies. So they wanted to look at whether the squeaking and chirping noises they make could be translated, so to speak, and whether they were using these noises to communicate about more than just the basic, look, there's a predator or, oh, no, I'm in pain. Hmm. And what they found was pretty amazing and not exactly what they expected. So not only do naked mole rats definitely use different sounds to communicate different types of messages, but in fact, each colony has its own dialect. A naked mole rat can tell right away if another naked mole rat is from a different colony just from its squeaks. And actually, wow. they turn out to be pretty xenophobic. Uh, in the wild, <laughs> they will attack an outsider without hesitation as soon as they hear it squeak. Co-author Gary Lewin noted that human beings and naked mole rats seem to have much more in common than anyone might have previously thought. So, <laughs> you know, if you walk in with an accent, you're a goner in the naked mole rat colony, I suppose. Woof. Yeah. But so... Or squeak. <laughs> so in order to collect this data, researchers from the Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin recorded a total of 36,190 chirps made by wow. 166 individuals from seven different colonies. And the differences were too subtle for humans to distinguish, but they fed all the recordings into an AI program, which was able to distinguish eight sound characteristics, including things like the asymmetry of the sound spectrogram. And by the end of its training, the program was not only able to reliably predict which squeaks came from which colony, but also which squeak came from which specific mole rat. So they have voices. Wow. Like you can, you can tell which mole rat is your mole rat, I guess. And, you know, so they figured if the computer can do it, Maybe the mole rats can do it. And sure enough, yeah. they showed that the mole rats can recognize the voices of individuals that they know. And if they put two colonies together in a big container, they would quickly sort themselves into opposing sides and have like a little standoff, I guess. <laughs> I wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's more, they showed that the dialect is largely dictated by the queen. As with ants, there's just one female in the colony who's giving birth at any given time. And when one of the researchers' colonies happened to lose two queens in quick succession, there was sort of what they described as a state of anarchy. And the range of that colony's chirps became much wider and didn't narrow down again into a recognizable dialect until a new queen had definitively ascended a few months later. So, wow. you know, they're taking their orders from the top, which is good social behavior. It makes sense that they would do that. But it makes you wonder. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like it's the Queen's English, basically. Our, our rulers define our language, I suppose, to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that they immediately, like, they're just like, oh, whatever. Like, there's no more Queen. Let's just say whatever we want until we figure out who is the new ruler here. That's right. And then get in line vocally. <laughs> who even knows what our accent is anymore? Like, can you imagine if in the switch between one president to another, all of us lost our accents and started talking like we're from New Jersey <laughs> or Italy or who even knows? And then we all settled in on whatever the new president 
president's accent was. Yeah, well, I mean, that's part of the reason why uh, in Spain, the Spanish they speak is with a lisp because at one point the king had a lisp. Oh, really? And he demanded that all Spanish speakers in Spain also lisp so that he wouldn't feel self-conscious. Right. I believe it's Spain, uh, but one country definitely does this. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Pretty wild. That's amazing. Well, if I ever become queen, I'll make you all talk like me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'll figure it out when the time comes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This comes from theguardian.com and it's titled Box Seat. Scientists solve the mystery of why wombats have cube-shaped poo. <gasps> oh, yeah. So unique physiology allows the Australian marsupial to produce square-shaped feces that may aid communication. Oh. Uh, so how wombats produce their cube-shaped poo has long been a biological puzzle, but now an international study has provided the answer to this unusual natural phenomenon. The cube shape is formed within the intestines and not at the point of exit as previously thought, Ooh. according to research published in scientific journal <laughs> Soft Matter oh, no. on Thursday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I don't know. Did they make this journal just for this article? You know, right. like, it's so good. Or is it like all of the articles are feces related? Like, this is yeah. just, I don't know. I want to see how thematic they are now. Okay. Soft matter. Right. To look it up. I will. Uh, don't miss out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the paper expands on preliminary findings first presented at a meeting of the American Physical Society's Fluid Dynamics Division in Georgia in 2018. Dr. Scott Carver, wildlife ecologist at the University of Tasmania and one of the authors of the research paper, said there were wonderfully colorful hypotheses around, but no one had tested it. There was speculation that wombats had a square-shaped anal sphincter <laughs> or that the feces get squeezed between the pelvic bones, as well as the complete nonsense idea that wombats pat the feces into shape after they deposit them. Just for fun, so, you know. Yeah. It's like it's like those old Play-Doh toys where you, like, push the pump down and it comes out in, like, a long tube shaped like a star. Yeah. <laughs> The project originated four years ago when Carver was dissecting a euthanized wombat hit by a car and noticed the cubes in the last meter of the wombat's intestine. Carver described it as an, isn't that odd moment. <laughs> uh, and he says, you know, the thing that's striking is how do you produce cubes inside essentially a soft tube? Mm -hmm. The team of researchers in Australia, including the head veterinarian at Taronga Zoo, tested the tensile strings of the intestine, while physicists in the U.S., based at the Georgia Institute of Technology, created mathematical models to simulate the production of cubes. So we're now creating intestinal poop cube-shaping mathematical models, right. which is pretty cool, honestly. <laughs> I imagine the math majors who went into that thought, this is what I'm going to use this for. This is important yeah. stuff. <laughs> Uh, so the team discovered big changes in the thickness of muscles inside the intestine, varying between two stiffer regions and two more flexible regions. Huh. So Carver says the rhythmical contractions help form the sharp corners of the cube. So I guess you can kind of imagine the feces going through the intestine and as it enters each segment, you know, it gets sort of shaped and firmed in between. And I'm almost imagining sort of like the different sections of like a multi-part bus, you know, where some are rigid yeah. and some are flexible. That's cube shaped, right? It could be. <laughs> yeah, <sort laughs> Why <of>. not? <laughs> Anyways, uh, when preliminary findings were presented in 2018, at that point, researchers believed there were four stiff and four flexible regions. But what final research has confirmed is that the wombat's intestine has two stiff and two flexible regions. When asked why wombats have this feature, Carver said one theory was that wombats with their strong sense of smell communicate with each other via feces and that the cube shape helps prevent the feces from rolling away, which is 
also a theory, you know, uh, not one that I would come up with. Yeah, but... I mean, doesn't say why you wouldn't want them to roll away, but I suppose, yes, it does prevent yeah. them from rolling away. Yeah, I don't really know if wombats live a lot on, like, hilly terrain, so I can't hmm. say. I- I'll just accept it. Yeah. The researchers did also find that cube-shaped feces on an 8-degree slope rolled far less than spherical-shaped models. And Vogelnest aided the research by facilitating an ethically approved CT scan of a live wombat zoo resident, Lucy Liu. And he said, uh, this is one of the more unusual research projects Taranga has been involved in. A bit quirky, but it does answer a very significant question. One that a lot of people ask. Do they? Like, I, I, yeah, I feel I like know. some wombat researchers ask, but I don't know if we can qualify that to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess if you're a zoologist and you yeah. work around wombats and you teach people about wombats, I can imagine lots of people being like, what the heck? Um, (laughs) But (laughs) as well as the benefits of better understanding wombats themselves, Carver said the discovery highlighted a new way of manufacturing cubes inside a soft tube, which could be applied to other fields of manufacturing, clinical pathology, and digestive health. (laughs) Um, So we can learn from the wombat poop channels how to make cubes. Like, that's what we've come with, is we could make cube-shaped vitamin gummies or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not totally sure what the proposed applications are. The article ends there (laughs) in a almost menacing way, in my opinion. (laughs) They won't roll away. Like, think of all the things you don't want to have roll away. If we make them cubes, they won't anymore. (laughs) That's very true. That's very, very true. So many things roll away from me all the time. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this one has some very good news. Sciencefocus.com wants us to know that regular afternoon naps are linked to improved cognitive function. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I almost did like a little celebratory. I saw this headline. I was like, yes, tell me more. (laughs) Justify the thing that I was going to do anyway. The new study published in the journal General Psychiatry examined the sleep patterns of more than 2,200 healthy people over age 60 in several large cities in China. Of those, about 1,500 took a regular afternoon nap anywhere from five minutes to two hours a day. And across all the participants, the average nighttime sleep was six and a half hours. So the naps did represent an increase in the total amount of sleep. And they found that the napping group had significantly higher scores in locational awareness, verbal fluency, and memory. Some of the napping participants also showed higher than average scores in memory consolidation, preparation for subsequent learning, executive functioning, and emotional stability, but these effects were not observed in all cases. Mm -hmm. But before you get your jammies out, there are some caveats. First, the study only demonstrates a correlation, not a causation, and there is actually a lot of evidence linking dementia to poorer sleep in general. So it may be that the cognitive decline is the thing preventing them from taking a nap because they just aren't sleepy. Mm-hmm. Also, napping was associated with other health drawbacks, such as a higher level of triglycerides in the bloodstream, which is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And in fact, if your triglycerides get really high, they can cross the blood-brain barrier and induce insulin resistance, which itself lowers cognitive function. So there's a little bit of a bell curve going on where they're like, yeah, if you're in the middle, you're good. But if you go too far in the napping, you're probably going to get unhealthy in other ways. Which, you know, it just goes back to like, oh, you should exercise and get enough sleep and eat regularly. Like, I want something that tells me what I want to hear, not yeah. like, <laughs> this moderation on. nonsense. Can we just that's... get a little excess once in a while? Like... Right, right. <laughs> Other research has also connected napping to the immune system, and the effect there seems to go in both directions. Sleep helps reduce inflammation, and also people who are suffering from inflammation feel more tired and have a tendency to nap more. 
Another study got a little more granular and found that short naps of less than 30 minutes a day were associated with a reduced risk of Alzheimer's, but Hmm. the effect disappeared in patients who took very long naps. I've definitely found that if I sleep too long during a nap, I wake up feeling terrible. Yeah. Like, I, I, you have to wake up early enough. If you really get into, like, that deep sleep, you wake up like you've died. It's just awful. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just groggy. And then, you know, you feel like you're about to be able to go to sleep again, but then, no, you actually got sleep, so you're up super late. Well, I guess we're going to have to switch to, like, five-minute naps every hour. That's yeah. how. Well, there's that thing that Salvador Dali or, or somebody does where they nap in a chair holding a key in their fingers with a saucer underneath. So the moment they finally doze off and let go of the key, it hits the saucer. And whoever this was really swears by this technique and said it's the huh. perfect amount to nap, which doesn't sound true to me, but whatever. I mean, I guess for just naps, it, certainly not for all night long. That just sounds like sleep certainly. apnea. Yeah. Like, you never really get... <laughs> to sleep you just constantly waking up again yeah it's a it's a napping technique but you know if salvador dolly did it like who's to argue with him like yeah i know right <laughs> he he had such a normal mustache he had to know what he was talking about yeah <laughs> <laughs> next link next, next link. link okay some more space news this article comes mm. to us from npr.org it's titled first private crew will visit space station the price tag 55 million dollars each Oh, is that all? Okay. Yeah. So uh, a crew of private astronauts will pay around $55 million each to spend about eight days at the International Space Station next January in what would be a new step for joint private-public space missions, ostensibly Mm. only for rich people. Right. Uh, The proposed AX-1 mission will use a SpaceX rocket to put three paying customers, American Larry Connor, Canadian Mark Pathy, and Israeli Aitan Stib, into low-Earth orbit on the space station. All of the trio are wealthy entrepreneurs and investors, but the article didn't really need to say that. Right. It would be the first time an entirely private mission sends astronauts to the International Space Station. All of the private astronauts for the upcoming mission are far older than the average astronaut's age of 34. Mm -hmm. The space agency does not have age restrictions for astronaut candidates who generally range from 26 to 46 years old, which really surprised me. I would have assumed that, you know, you kind of had to be in your prime. Right. It's like professional sports. Once you hit 40, man, you're out. Like, how could you? Yeah. But at 70, Connor is surpassed in age only by John Glenn, who flew on the space shuttle when he was 77, which is pretty wild. Wow. I did not know that. That makes John Glenn way cooler. Yeah. Uh, While the paying customers represent a new era of space tourism, they'll also be performing research as the space station whizzes over the Earth. Connor will work with the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic on research projects while Pathy will collaborate with the Canadian Space Agency and the Montreal Children's Hospital. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly how that applies to being in space, but, you know. (laughs) Stib plans to do experiments for Israeli researchers working with the Ramon Foundation and Israel's Space Agency. So, at the very least, you know, these super rich millionaires are contributing in some way to research and not just, like, going on a tour. Yeah, and I mean, we we do have to send old people up there at some point to see if we can. Yeah, so, well you know, if, if we're going to sacrifice somebody, it might as well be a billionaire who wants to go up there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is just charity, really. Right, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> They're donating so, their body for science. Yes. Similar missions are planned for the future. Axiom hopes to arrange up to two trips per year, and the company also wants to build its own privately funded space station. And under that plan, its modules would be attached to the space station as soon as 2024. And when the space station is retired, the Axiom modules would break off to continue into orbit on their own. 
NASA announced its plans to open the International Space Station to commercial activities in June 2019, saying it wants businesses to use innovation and ingenuity to speed up development of a thriving commercial economy in low Earth orbit. And the space agency has a plan to recoup the steep costs of a private citizen visiting the space station. Its pricing policy lists expenses such as a daily fee of 11250 per person for regenerative life support and toilet, and uh, 22500 per person for crew supplies such as food and air. Wow. Yeah, and the price sheet also includes a data plan priced at $50 per gigabyte. <laughs> So you can get on your social media and like live tweet what you're doing while you're up there. Exactly. Space is expensive, apparently. I don't know. I mean, I feel it's it's a little bit schadenfreude of me, I guess. But it would be really funny if they all got, I think it's called Meniere's disease, but it's, it's space madness, basically. Uh, like your body yeah. just cannot handle being weightless. You get, you know, nausea and illness and all sorts of stuff, but you also sometimes get psychosis. Like, huh. that would be amazing to watch on live stream a billionaire just going nuts <laughs> in the space station. They got to, like, strap him down. It would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, we're going to keep with the theme here. CBC Radio has an article called Building Earth's Largest Telescope on the Far Side of the Moon. So NASA engineers are studying the feasibility of a massive kilometer-wide telescope on the moon that would dwarf anything we could build on Earth. The project is led by NASA robotics engineer Saptarshi Byandopadhyay, and it's called the Lunar Crater Radio Telescope. And the reason it's a radio telescope in particular has to do with some cool science that I guess I kind of knew but hadn't really applied properly in my mind, which is that, generally speaking, all waves are waves right? Light waves and sound waves and radio waves and x-rays, mm -hmm. they're all just different spots along the wavelength spectrum with different tools or sometimes body parts that are specialized to detect each particular band of frequencies. But what this means is that if you take a light wave and slow it way down, eventually it's not a light wave anymore. It's a radio wave. And huh. this is what has happened to the most ancient light waves that were released billions of years ago at the early stages of the universe. The light waves from the Big Bang started out at fractions of a millimeter and are now more than 10 meters long as the universe has expanded. Okay, that is blowing my mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and so basically if we want to find light waves from the Big Bang, we can no longer look for light. We have to listen for radio waves, which, is, yeah, it's mind-blowing. I had no idea. This has shattered me. <laughs> that is so wild. Okay, sorry. Please. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. But so these extremely long radio waves can't generally be detected on Earth because our ionosphere absorbs them and gets in the way. So to study them, we need telescopes that are out in space and they need to be really, really big, like a kilometer wide. Even if we wanted to build a telescope that big on Earth, we couldn't because the weight of the material presents engineering problems. Basically, it wants to collapse in on itself. It's got to be a dome. It doesn't want to stay a dome. The biggest telescopes on Earth, like the FAST telescope in China, top out at about 500 meters across. And to achieve even that, they had to be built inside massive craters to support their shape. Wow. But on the moon, with one-sixth the gravity, it's actually looking pretty feasible. They're still going to build it inside a crater, just because you can. And Bandio Padye says there are at least 80,000 suitable craters on the far side of the moon, which that's the side you want because you want to be pointed in the right direction to be going out mm. into space. We don't care what's coming off of Earth. But getting the materials up there and constructing it is another problem entirely. So the way they're looking to pull it off is to make the telescope's dish 
out of a thin wire mesh that can be folded up in a precise way, theoretically so tightly that it could be stored in the nose cone of a single large rocket. Then it would be shot up to the center of the crater along with a set of four rovers that would each grab a corner and pull it up the sides of the crater until it was suspended, kind of like an upside-down parachute. Did you ever play those games in elementary school where everybody holds a corner and you're, like, lifting it up and down together? And you just run in there. Yeah. Well, I was the guy who would run in, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so this mesh technology already exists, and the robots actually already exist as well. They're called do-axle robots. They're made by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and they can climb cliff faces so steep that they're almost vertical. Basically, the only thing they don't have right now is the money. Bondio Padie says, given the size of the rocket needed, as well as the cost of the radio telescope itself, it's probably decades away. He says, and I quote, space is hard. Like, (laughs) (laughs) they just want money. And NASA's like, yeah, we have a shortage of it. And of all the things, like, everybody's excited to go to Mars. Nobody's excited to put a telescope on the far side of the moon. Funding is often connected to what people are interested in. Which is so wild because, I mean, I think it's incredible that we're now at the point where we're like, well, this radio telescope just isn't going to work on Earth. Let's put it on the moon. We have that option. Sure. And I want to see what these rovers can do on Earth. Like if we have rovers that can basically climb up steep cliff faces, why are we not using them here? Like, why do we have giant cranes? I want a little rover climbing up the side of a skyscraper to construct it. (laughs) It seems more efficient to me. I mean, I presume it's probably the gravity here. That's but true. I'm no rover scientist. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to include researchers turned a Venus flytrap into a robotic gripper, how Africa's largest city is staying afloat, and quad gods, the world-class gamers who play with their mouths. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support us and keep us with this lovely ad-free experience that you are having, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 